My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today, I'm joined by Aaron Siberium. Uh, he is a writer for the Washington Free Beacon, um, a Yale graduate, and uh, he was the opinion of the he was the opinion editor of the Yale Daily News uh, back in the day when his, uh, he was at this prestigious uh, institution. Um, and he was also an editor at the American Interest before joining the Free Beacon. Um, welcome, Aaron. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for coming on. I've um, I followed your work in tweet form for a while, and I've also read uh, some of some of your really interesting essays. Um, and I feel like we we kind of have some some convergent thoughts. And uh, I, I was really excited to to talk to you. I've also listened to to some of your contributions on Clubhouse. Uh, one of the maybe four times I went there. So uh, you're obviously someone who's uh, who's clued into the present moment. So I'm, I'm excited to talk to you. We were both in the reactionary feminism room. Uh, were, you, were you there when it almost got derailed, but we were able to push it, right uh, the ship? I'm, I'm uh, a sleepy, sleepy pregnant woman. I always, I always exit early. Um, but I've, I've heard, I've heard that it, it was derailed. But what, what, what exactly derailed it? I, I can't remember. Someone, some very strange, woke, uh, self-described left anarchist started uh, getting angry at the you know, presence of uh, white, non-woke people on the stage and the fact that we weren't uh, talking about, talking enough about race and some other, um, some other topics. And I, I mean, it was, it was a little weird, but fortunately she was really the only one who was, who was uh, going there. Um, so it, it didn't create any problems, but you know, it, there were, there were, for a good 20 minutes, we ended up just getting into an argument with her. Uh, but thankfully, that uh, resolved itself. And she just quit of her own volition. Um, and that was nice because she was uh, accusing everyone of racism without making productive contributions. And I didn't like that. Yeah, I've that that's kind of been one of my pet peeves with with Clubhouse. Like, you know, the, the few times where I find a little bit of time to overlap and then get in there, I, I would say at least 50% of the time, there's something like this where someone's at least trying a little coup to to break yes. in and wokeify the room. And then um, uh, there was also that, that Brett Weinstein situation where um, they essentially took over and then they kicked him off the stage, which I think is a strange functionality to have because I think it was his room where he, he was a moderator before. Um, it's, um, it, it is a bit strange that people can just come in and, and commandeer. It's a, it's a very, it's like a real time refutation of the marketplace of ideas meme, <laughs> which is kind of good because I mean, it, I, I look like I, I'm, I'm all for open discourse and, and there, there's an idealized form of the marketplace of ideas that I think it's good to aspire to. But uh, people often, especially in kind of the IDW um, sort of centrist anti-PC liberal space, uh, they want to argue, well, this stuff is all bad because it disrupts the marketplace of ideas. And no, no, no. The, the problem is that the marketplace of ideas is, is largely a myth, just as the pure free market is a myth. And to the extent that Clubhouse demonstrates in real time 
how mythological it is, I think that's uh, probably one of the more positive contributions of the app to our discourse. Uh, hopefully it disabuses people of the notion that we live in any kind of real marketplace of ideas because we don't. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a, a fair point. And uh, I think the, uh, the the Brett Weinstein recording is going to live in infamy as uh, as one of the uh, the, the highlights of, of, of this argument, um, or at least to, to disprove the argument about the marketplace. Ready. I don't know if everyone's getting the message, though, because um, I've I've um, I know you've written about kind of the, the, the post-liberal moment and, you know, what arguments are going around. Um, I've read an extremely great essay of yours on uh, on Adrian Vermeule and kind of his slant on the on the whole thing. And uh, um, I want to I want to talk to about that as well. But it's it seems to me like this is kind of I don't know, maybe I'm patting myself on the back here, but this is kind of the cutting edge of what people are thinking about right now. They're they're you know, people like me who've who've game theoretically arrived at this point, you know, just playing out all the scenarios and thinking about, you know, observing, noticing, noticing, noticing continuously that, you know, there there are certain endpoints to certain ideas. Like, like you said, you know, the free market isn't that free. The marketplace of ideas isn't that, you know, <laughs> isn't that free either. And there are all sorts of constraints that are becoming very visible now. Um, I don't know. I don't know how, how I want to you know, phrase this, but kind of what's, what's your, you know, you've got your finger on the pulse. What's your feeling about where this is heading or where, where, where is it? Where are we at this moment? Cause I feel like a lot of people are thinking about this from, from different perspectives. Like you, you saw, you know, you have the essay on Vermeule. He's, he has his yeah. Catholic integralism. There's, you know, accelerationist, there's all sorts of visions about this, but uh, I think it's, I don't know, at least it seems like a very fruitful place to be thinking in. Yeah, well, I mean, you basically just asked me to give my, like, entire theory of modern Western politics. Yes, uh, that's what we're I here don't, for. I don't know if I have a coherent <laughs> one worked out, so I'll sort of just make a, a maybe almost a meta observation, which is that, um, you know, there have been plenty of times throughout history where there have been huge, often technologically mediated changes in society that create mass disruption. And I don't think that that means that we should just lie down and take it, right? But I do think it should inspire a certain amount of humility, both about theorizing and especially about predicting where all this will go. Um, you know, gun to my head, I would say in the short run, uh, uh, quote unquote, woke stuff is going to get a lot worse um, and keep going. Uh, and potentially, you know, we will reach a point where it really, maybe we're already there, but we certainly, I think, will have at least a few years where the the kind of consolidation of wokeism and all the institutions, you know, amounts to a kind of totalizing regime that uh, it's not terribly pleasant to live under. I don't really know how long that can last. And I think that people who are predicting, you know, some kind of like, you know, just permanent state or Orwellianism could be, but I, I'm not totally convinced that it, this stuff is stable. Um, and I, I think, you know, it's good to keep in mind that nothing lasts forever, both the good stuff, but also the bad stuff. And uh, in general, I would say that the people who are kind of on our same wavelength, you know, are often very correct in their critiques of the present moment. But then when they start trying to game out what will happen, or they start proposing their own positive alternatives, and frankly, I think 
Courtesy Arvin is a great example where the critiques are very good, but you know the alternative that's being sketched out, I'm not sure it's particularly plausible, especially in the United States. And I'm also not sure that uh, any of us is terribly good at predicting the future. So, you know, I would say like prepare for stuff to get worse in the short run, but keep an open mind about the long run and remember that, you know, uh, a lot can change in 20 years. So maybe, you know, in 10 years, we reach the zenith of the quote unquote successor regime and it's really horrible. Then maybe it collapses and maybe the collapse um, is terrible and it's, you know, redolent of uh, the Soviet Union collapsing into just kind of, you know, cronyism and uh, soft core authoritarianism. Or maybe the co it collapses into something that's actually a lot healthier. Um, I really don't think we know. And I, I tend to be skeptical of people who claim that they know. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. And and I also agree with the with the, the simple fact that it's easier to diagnose dysfunction than to propose, uh, you know, <laughs> systemic solutions, uh, especially when it comes to, you know, uh, essentially global regime, because the, essentially the American empire and somewhere or another, you know, is present here as we speak in Romania, in my, in my COVID bunker, uh, the, I am, it's, it is permeated with the American empire. I mean, just listen to me. So it's, uh, it's everywhere. And, you know, it's just proposing, oh, okay, so what, what should this look like? What will this look like? It's, it's a pretty, is a pretty tall order. And, um, but, but like you said, I think what I'm interested in is, and what's interesting, just, it is interesting to me to play out what might happen. Um, to look at the direction, to look at, you know, where were the vectors pointing uh, and to, you know, to, to maybe not be so surprised. Um, but what, what will happen when, you know, this, this game theoretical scenario plays out, you know, what, what's left after that, that's a, that's a big question. And there's so many factors in it. And one factor that you highlighted is technology. Um, do you think we'd, we, we would have reached this point in, in some way with, without, the internet to me the internet seems to be like not not just a catalyst but just like the biggest yes. i don't know tnt barrel acme yeah brand. i i really think that all of the all of the kind of you know either death of liberalism or post-liberal theorizing is largely worthless if it doesn't begin from the premise that a big portion of this stuff is technologically mediated and and just looking at history right um you know liberalism really did not come about until after the printing press, which is what created the kind of social conflicts that set in motion the religious conflict and then the Feast of Westphalia and then and all the other kind of institutions that were designed to um, channel and kind of mitigate uh, diversity um, within Europe and kind of make pluralistic living possible. It was largely, you know, the result, but it was the, both the problem was created by technology, but also the solution arguably. Um, you know, with print medium and then even uh, with the televisual medium, it was possible for states to centralize information um, up to a point and kind of, you know, limit social conflict by doing that. But also, you know, print culture, um, I think, was, was conducive in certain ways to kind of uh, the myth of the marketplace of ideas. We can talk about why in a little bit. Um, and the internet really just blows this up because it simultaneously makes possible a much greater degree of resistance and decentralization, but at the same time, it also makes possible an unprecedented degree of centralization and um, 
authoritarian authoritarian control, right? You know, China, China and sort of early 90s, like, you know, Silicon Valley libertarianism, these are actually, I think, two sides of the same technological coin. They're both possibilities contained within the new technological dispensation. Um, and which of those wins out, I, I don't know. I think the real challenge, right, is both extremes are, are fundamentally untenable. Um, you can't have a kind of epistemic free for all and you don't and you can't or at least you shouldn't want to have, um, you know, Chinese level totalizing, uh, you know, centralized control of information either. Um, and really what we need to find is is a way to live with technology, you know, where it's not just pure epistemic free for all, but it's also, you know, but we're then we're not basically containing the epistemic anarchy by erecting a kind of epistemic tyranny, which I think is a solution that a lot of the quote unquote disinformation experts, so to speak, uh, want us to do. I don't think that that's mm -hmm. a good idea. Um, but, you know, to, to give them some credit, right, uh, it, it really has never been possible to broadcast so many her heretic and dissident views to so many people, you know, in such a short amount of time with the internet. And that's obviously a problem for just social cohesion. And, you know, people who just sort of tell you that there shouldn't be any guardrails, I think, are very naive. There have always been guardrails. And, you know, the reason that we're getting some of this totalitarianism with Google, Facebook censorship is in part because, um, you know, I think everyone kind of correctly senses that the total absence of guardrails is a recipe for suicide. The problem is that now they're going so far in the other direction that it that it's, you know, th this isn't just guardrails anymore. This is really, you know, kind of coordinated um, control of every sort of epistemological avenue. Yeah, and, and it, it does seem um, weird to me that a lot of people kind of on, on, on my side, which are the, the people that are being kind of crushed by the regime at the moment, you know, their, their uh, free speech is being curtailed, um, say, okay, the, the only thing we need to do is, is bring free speech back. We need to go back to the time when free speech was, you know, in power, um, and that will solve our problem. But it, it's this is the position of the underdog, essentially. You know, the, the the people in power never need to argue for free speech because their position's already entrenched. Um, um, you said something about you know the, the marketplace of ideas being an illusion. I mean, I, I I know why I think it is an illusion, but I'm curious why why you why you think so. What's what's the argument there? Well. Um we can get into my criticisms of Adrian Vermeule in a bit, but I will say, I think his essay that I kind of responded to about this had a very clear statement of kind of the marketplace of ideas as a myth position. And, and the basic argument is, look, um, either, either you just tautologically define truth as whatever the marketplace of ideas produces, which is begging the question, um, and that's meaningless, or, right, you have some kind of, uh, external standard, you know, ex external to the market standard of what truth is, and you'd have to look at over the long run, does the quote unquote free exchange of ideas tend to produce truth? And it's just not obvious that it does in any kind of systematic or reliable way. Um, you can point to various uh, mechanisms that distort, you know, the process of kind of collective social reason, such as just, you know, biases, heuristics, that's kind of the behavioral psych answer. But I don't even think you have to go there. You just have to say, look, like the world is extremely complicated and so many smart people have been wrong. Just like 
like look at it with your own two eyes. Does it seem like, you know, free speech and open discourse has always led to truth? And does it seem like when we've arrived at some important truth, be it technological or moral, that that was primarily produced through just kind of the, you know, some spontaneous order of like different views vying against each other. There are discrete cases where that seems like the right model, but there's plenty of discrete cases where it just doesn't seem like the right model. And, you know, I'm, look, like I'm not actually terribly socially conservative on a lot of things. You know, I'm happy that, you know, our society is a lot more uh, tolerant of gay people, um, for example. And I'm glad that uh, not unexpected consequences, notwithstanding that we had something like the civil rights revolution that, you know, did end what really was like an oppressive um, regime um, against black people. But like you look at what happened in those cases, the, the liberals who want to go back and argue, oh, it's just the marketplace of ideas. I mean, maybe with gay marriage a little bit that works, but a, a lot of, you know, the building of tolerance, it was, it was activists who actively did create disruption. And there was a lot of actual shaming and coercion involved in the construction of new non-racist social norms. Like, I'm glad that we, that it's no longer acceptable to be overtly racist against people of color. But that wasn't like, it's not like we arrived at that conclusion through just spontaneously reasoning, you know, through like Habermasian discourse, whatever. No, I mean, there were like activists who gained levers of power and used it to reshape law and to shame people who didn't cooperate. And like on, I think that some of that was good, but it was coercive. It was not spontaneous order. Um, and I think uh, it, liberals who think otherwise are just kind of deluding themselves about the history. And, you know, this is actually one place where in many respects, I think the kind of woke critical theory left has, has a point that um, a lot of quote unquote social and moral progress does come about not through the marketplace of ideas, but through coercion. Problem, of course, is that now um, the you know the, the the use of coercive cultural and state power is not necessarily being directed towards just you know ending racism. It's being directed towards like kind of completely reordering the regime around an insane set of kind of you know manufactured moral grievances. Yeah, um, it, it does seem like it's it's kind of an incentive issue where there is extreme pressure on one end to, to kind of let this escalate. And there is extreme kind of pressure building on the other end to not intervene in it. And these, um, I think, I think you mentioned this, um, uh, what was it? I think I've, I've, I've picked it up, but maybe I don't even remember it, uh, exactly. Um, this, um, centrifugal, uh, hmm. What was it? Yeah, I can't find it. Was this uh, in my Weimar essay? I think so. Yeah, I think so. It was the yeah, essentially like the, the idea. Sort of yeah, that the two, you know, kind of action begs reaction, and we are kind of in yes. a spiral of yeah reacting to each other. And I think you know technology layers on top of that, and you have very visible reactions uh, that are disseminated instantly towards every partisan, uh, and kind of everyone's forced into being a partisan. So um, I'm, yes. I'm curious if you could ex expand on that a bit. No, yeah, that that's exactly it. Um, I think uh, you know. Actually, Trump and Trump derangement syndrome is, is a very good example of this, where um, Trump got elected in large part in as a reaction to a kind of overreaching 
elite, censorious, you know, woke left that had just totally lost touch with reality and that was very contemptuous of half the country. Um, Trump's election did not pacify the, you know, the woke left at all. It just drove them crazier. Um, As they got driven crazier, I think it drove the right even crazier um, in response. And, you know, I, maybe a few of your anonymous uh, listeners won't like this, but, you know, look like the the January 6th thing, it's, it's not, it's not, it's not a good justification for anything the left wants to do. We shouldn't start some domestic war on terror or anything like that. But, but it wasn't good. And it was, I think, a, a, you know, symptomatic of the, the derangement um, that sort of, uh, you know, this kind of iterative reaction spiral can produce. And then, you know, at the same time, right, the response to January 6th, where now you have serious people talking about, you do have them talking about a domestic war on terror, is an example of how that iterative reactionary spiral, you know, works on the left, where as the right gets crazier and crazier, the left just gets crazy, you know, more and more paranoid about the right. And they both sides end up, to some extent, I think, confirming, you know, the other stereotypes of them. Uh, And that's a very hard cycle to break out of. Um, You can obviously play a game where you try to assign more moral culpability to one side or the other, depending on your priors. And there may be some kind of platonic answer there as to who's more at fault. But at a certain point, like, I also think that discussion kind of misses the uh, dyadic kind of iterative nature of the dynamic. And ultimately, like, who cares whose fault it is? This is what's going on. Both sides are radicalizing each other. And yes, I'm more, I'm probably on balance more worried about what the radical left will do. But you really can't understand their actions, you know, kind of, outside of the context of what they're reacting to, which is a more sort of, I think, radical right. And and like just sociologically, this is what's going on. What you do about it is a separate question, but it, it, there no, you know, if the diagnosis is wrong, the prescription is probably gonna be wrong. And I, I really think that the diagnosis needs to be that both sides are driving each other crazy and, you know, drifting further and further away from sanity. Yeah. And I think the the one of the key ingredients here is just the, the, the monetization strategy of almost every form of technology is to mm-hmm. entertainment. And there's nothing more entertaining than a than a kind of simmering religious war that's happening between your side and and, and the other side that you like. And a good example of that would be, you know, People like Milo Yiannopoulos, right? I guess before he kind of he kind of fell from grace. But you know, what was his business model, right? It was triggering the left and capitalizing, literally, you know, making money on the reaction. He has no, he had no actual incentive to fight wokeness at all. I mean, if 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 this stuff disappeared, he, he'd be out of business. And on the by the same token, right? A lot of the uh, professional kind of activist class and the professional anti-disinformation class. I mean, these people have no incentive for the crazy stuff on the right to actually go away um, and to actually maybe bring some of the real, you know, out there QAnon types back to sanity. Because if if they succeeded, they'd be out of business. They'd have no justification or mandate for their existence. So like, of course, they're going to keep manufacturing these outrages. And of course, they're going to keep trying to drive the right insane and get the right to do insane things. 
because that's what justifies their own power and their own existence. Um, yeah, no, it's the, the financial side of this is a real problem. Um, both sides have their kind of internal stakeholders who absolutely have no incentive to, um, you know, genuinely kind of pacify the other side. Yeah. And, and also it's not just, you know, like individual pundits, like this is the core business model of the internet. It's feed, feeding, you know, yes. you with outrage or with what, whatever keeps you on. And, you know, lizard brain knows what it wants. It wants, you know, hyperpalatable food. It wants, you know, I don't know, boobs or whatever. And it wants complete tribal rage. And the internet is better than anyone at providing, you know, all, all of these. Oh, yeah. Well, and of course, then then you have sort of legacy media institutions who are perhaps the biggest defenders of this. Um, and so much of what the New York Times publishes is just uh, it's feeding it's it's simultaneously feeding um, their woke subscriber base. And it's also, I think, clickbait to get conservatives angry um, to just create more controversies. Right. Like that, that that's all they're doing. Um, so much of what these publications produce now is is really just outrage porn. That's all it is. Yeah, I'm. I wonder, kind of, because I feel like maybe one of the, the possible alternatives to everything that's going on in this space, you know, this kind of this escalation that everyone's in and everyone's really got their has their haunches up and all, oh, you know, collapse is imminent and, and uh, would just be, you know, kind of a, a return to localism in some way in kind of um, return to uh, maybe even on, in a way online localism to kind of just descale things and to uncouple yourself from um, at least from the main pipeline of, you know, crazy slop that's just coming at you 24 yeah. um, seven. I think that would at least, and I know a lot of people kind of who are educated enough to know that this is, this is entertainment rather than politics um, do that. You know, they, they uncouple um, consciously and they, they do this systematically. They're like homesteading and they, they're buying, you know, property in Vermont and stuff like that. Uh, but I feel like, you know, this is this is now kind of what what the elites some elites are doing because they know this is not good for them. Uh, but I'm curious if this could I don't know if you see that that this might be like a tr a trend or something that people move into because it's just it's deranging to be. Yeah, I I think that you know that the kind of the deranging quality of online discourse does probably make some sort of localism, even a kind of deterritorialized online localism more attractive. The problem though is that deterritorialized online localism is fundamentally a different kind of localism. And you know, online subgroups are a different kind of community than um, you know, a physical geographic locality. And a lot of our not just our political system, but our kind of mimetic and ideological technology for making sense of the world, you know, is inherited from a time in which geographic and spatial boundaries were more important to defining and bounding communities than they are now with the internet. So yes, like, I think that there is a kind of move towards what you might call online localism, where people try to find their, you know, little online niches um, and, and find meaning that way. Um, but A, there's, I think, only so much that an online 
space can do. There, you know, there is a difference between physical interaction and the internet. Um, but B, uh, you know, we we had kind of a system for like letting localities flourish independently of each other and kind of creating space for for them and supporting them. We had sort of a system that was supposed to do that, but we don't really have a system that's that's set up to do that online. Um, not a political or technological system and not even really, I think, uh, ideological or philosophical system. Um, so, you know, that doesn't mean that this won't work or won't happen. I just think we should be honest, uh, let's go back to what I said earlier, that, you know, people really have no theory of how sort of online localism is supposed to work. And I don't think that we really can say with any confidence just how it will work or what kinds of institutions will need to be created um, in order for it to work. Um, this is actually, I don't really understand the whole kind of crypto decentralized capitalism thing that folks like Balaji, Srinivasan and others talk about. I don't understand it super well. I think it's very interesting, but but to the extent I understand it, this seems to be the the main problem I see with it that like, you know, the the state and kind of institutionalized political power all assumes that the boundaries of community are spatial to some extent and they're basically imagining a world in which just the space you know space has nothing to do with community and communal boundaries and that really entails like a huge ideological and institutional shift that i don't really think that they've fully thought out or if they have i just haven't really heard like a yeah. detailed response to how how all this is supposed like you know all this is supposed to migrate into cyberspace and, and work in in cyberspace it may it may be doable i just i think it's very hard to see predict how it will work and it will be a kind of rough and ex experimental process yeah yeah i i've i've uh i've kind of um played around with with these uh kind of online online localism ideas as as well and you know what what Balaji was was talking about it does seem to me like a, a lot of this musing about the future of online communities is done by people who are kind of very high intellect, high, you know, high decoupling, you know, maybe a touch of autism in, in the mix as well. Um, and it's, I, I have very hard time seeing how it scales. I mean, very hard time imagining how it yeah. works in, in principle. Cause I think, you know, Me a lot too. of these guys can imagine that it works, you know, cause they can imagine many things working and, you know, everything's kind of got a little bit of a mechanistic vibe when you, when you talk to, to people in tech, um, you know, the, the, the napkin calculation for this whole system might be airtight, but um, you know, once, once you translate it into the real world and you kind of bring human being, you know, these great apes into the combination, right. it, I feel like the, the level of abstraction that this stuff is handled at is just, it's just, it's not necessarily representative. And I feel like, you know, kind of, that's kind of one of my main gripes with, you know, the, the kind of libertarian liberalism as well. You know, the idea that, yeah, there is one level of abstraction. It is the individual. Uh, you deal with the individual through property rights. Uh, you know, we just all agree to not hurt each other, and bada bing, bada boom, that's society and whatever you know floats your boat. Uh, that's just 
absolutely, you know, has nothing to do with how, how human creatures actually work right. in the world. Um, I don't know. <laughs> that's my that's my main gripe. Obviously, I have a lot of people who are libertarians who like my content and do comment lots lots of times on my tweets. And I, <laughs> I sometimes <laughs> talk about this stuff with them, but most of the time, I'm just you know, I'm the 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 difference in yeah yeah just just worldview between me. I used to be a libertarian, but now I'm I don't know. I've kind of I've lived, guys. <laughs> It's, uh, you know, life, life, life right. does it to you. <laughs> I don't know what's, I mean, what's your stance on it. I, I, I think, uh, you know, yeah, so I tend to share that kind of Berkey and critique. And, and I would say, go further and say, you know, some of the folks like Yarvin who, who have the, you know, this sort of almost like, you know, neo-monarchism, it, it, it's itself based in a, a very kind of rationalizing modernist abstraction that I think does ignore a lot of the real life just complexities of, of lived experience. And that's my skeptic that's where a lot of my skepticism of it comes from. Um, you know, I'm skeptical of what maybe Curtis wants to do for the same reasons I'm skeptical of what um a lot of libertarians want to do, um, or even some, you know, centrist liberals for that matter. On the other hand, uh to to be charitable, right? I in times where old paradigms are breaking down, you know, no one kind of system-based thinker is going to probably succeed in predicting everything that happens and in redesigning like the entire world order. Um, and I'm sure that you know, if you pressed him, even even someone like Balaji, I'm sure would concede that you know he doesn't have all the answers. He's not going to be right about everything. But you know, you do need those kinds of people to put out kind of ideas and you know totalizing systems not because any one of them is going to be right and not because the marketplace of ideas guarantees that you know the best one will win out but just because the old paradigm clearly is breaking down under the influence of technology so we're gonna get to a new paradigm somehow and we do it's not just that we need people who are thinking in this way it's that thinking in this way is almost just you know, an essential constitutive part of moving from one paradigm to the other. So it's probably healthy to some extent that all these kind of weird zany ideas are out there now. Um, I'm just without arguing that, you know, the best of each one will somehow migrate to the top and create some like perfect utopia. I do think that probably a couple of them will contain real insights that do end up, um, you know, serving as important planks in whatever new order we we new equilibrium we arrive at and so look like i even if i don't agree with them like i i like people like curtis and i like people like balaji because i do think that they're performing an important function um in yeah. this kind of interstitial space we find ourselves at and I feel like there's there's quite a lot of kind of convergence between the two of them in a way because you know they're they're both libertarians at heart. Um, Curtis is a bit more, <laughs> I guess he's a bit more uh, weathered in a way by history. At least his 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 perspective on history. Uh, he's uh, you know he's uh, a bit a bit uh, less 
I don't know, was it like um, mobbed by reality or something? Um, but he's still a libertarian. I think his idea and probably Balazs' idea in, in a way would be to have some form of, you know, competitive city states. I mean, I'm, I'm making this up. I'm just kind of yeah. giving you my, my interpretation. But I've, this is kind yeah. of the feeling I'm getting uh, that are led by, you know, a Lee Kuan Yew type, uh, you know, yeah. CEO person. Uh, and then you you don't necessarily have tyranny because you have exit on these city states. Obviously this is all, you know, very uh, high level, but I feel like, you know, this of all the, the endpoints of, of, you know, impending collapse, this might be one of the better ones. Um, yeah. In a way, like these, these little is, yeah. One, one thing that's interesting to note about that argument though, is, you know, th- there's an important qualifier there. You won't have tyranny because there's exit. Mm-hmm. But that only really works if the exit rights come with entry rights, because otherwise, you know, if you exit and then you're just out of any state, like, well, you can't really exit because then you're stateless and that's that's terrible. So so in order for that to really work and be meaningful in practice, you would need, I think, a, like the world to be, if not open borders, then... I mean, there'd have to be the possibility of me- for people to meaningfully choose between alternatives. And so it would, in order for that normative vision to be remotely plausible or attractive, I think you would need, um, you know, a world that had, if not open borders, then at the very least pretty porous ones. And look, I mean, there might be a way to make that work, but it is interesting that many of the people who seem attracted to that kind of vision are often deeply skeptical of immigration. And I mean, look, I'm skeptical to an extent of, of immigration. I don't think that uh, open borders is, is a good idea, or at least I don't think we can have tons of new arrivals come in without it creating real social conflicts. But like, you know, if, if your plan for the world is, you know, just like competitive city states where people that people can choose between, you know, a kind of, you know, free market of city states. I don't really understand how that's supposed to work without, a, you know, basically free movement of, of labor, um, you know, throughout the world. Yeah. I think, you know, there's these, these being libertarians mostly, um, you know, they, they kind of default on the idea that if, if you don't have a, welfare state or or something you know the incentives for 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 open yeah. are going to be you know just less of an incentive to sure there's less sure. pressure to you know offer all this stuff uh libertarian libertarianism works much better even the, even the napkin calculation if you just completely dismantle any sort of right uh, redistribution but of course of course of course you know that puts a huge constraint on the ability right of states to actually try out different things and so it, it kind of it's almost like it maybe not a contradiction but a tension within the within the view because if if in order for this whole scheme to work all states would in practice have to basically you know like you don't want mass influx of immigrants to like destabilize the city state like okay so you can't really do you either have to have borders which kind of undermines the free entry exit premise or you'd have to maybe have open borders but like you know get rid of the welfare state so that you know there isn't there aren't these huge incentives except if you get rid of the welfare state like that that's a huge suddenly a constraint that's a huge constraint on what all the states in the system can do and so then it's not really like a true 
free market of city states because that you know suddenly one of the things that they could do to attract people is just kind of off the table so like again like when you try to game all this out um it's hard to really imagine a stable equilibrium where like li- like you can either have a world where there's you know market of city states but they all kind of come to resemble each other and there's no welfare state that seems like that might have some bad knock on effects or you know they do have welfare state but they in order to maintain it have to have closed borders in which case or, or severe border controls that kind of undermine the the whole premise of free entry exit that's supposed to make this a you know a, yeah. a normatively legitimate system this is and this one. is yeah start, starting to, <laughs> to sound more like you know your, your typical westphalian states but with you know like a ceo and i guess they're they're probably monarchies if we if we really think about yeah. it. Yeah. So this is yeah, this is probably just, you know, winding the clock back maybe a nice 200 years but with uh, with flying cars or I don't know exactly what will be Right, the, right. So <laughs> utopia. Yeah, I mean it I, I I yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, we don't need to keep going down the the rabbit hole of the the game theory. I just think it's it's worth pointing out right that these schemes have kind of obvious problems, not necessarily more obvious than other alternatives, but just like, let's not delude ourselves into thinking that something like this, you know, would happen without a ton of kind of contradictions that needed to be worked through and solved. Yeah, I, I feel like um, this probably versions of this probably will happen. But the idea that this is going to be the new consensus of how to organize society and every you know unit of, of humanity is going to be organized this way. I think that's probably impossible. I can't imagine like some high class Byzantiums, you know, popping up in, in different ways. Uh, um, and right. they would probably have some form of border control or, you know, absolutely no welfare state. And it's like a, a bit of a, you know, high tech, um, you know, state of nature. Uh, in which uh, you know 160 IQ tech right. behemoths compete at pinnacle or whatever they do in, in the city. <laughs> so yeah, it's um, it, it is interesting to see. I mean, hope uh, hope I'll be alive to see it. <laughs> but uh, it's uh, it, you know it's it's an interesting time to be alive. At least you know things are things are happening at pace. <laughs> at least if you're in, if you're interested in 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 the yeah in, in what's going on in the world. Yeah. No. Definitely. Um, I'm curious if you've read a book because um, I mean, reading your your Weimar um, essay reminded me of this book called The True Believer by Eric Hoffer. Um, I've not you, read it. Uh, it's it's I think it's it's an interesting book. It's uh, like the subtitle is Thoughts on the the Nature of Mass Movements, and it's looking at you know what what conditions and what types of people. Um, congregate to fuel these these mass movements and this could be anything from you know antifa on the one hand or mm-hmm. you know super you know extreme right wing you know militias on the other um and i think it's it's interesting that he observes that you know there are some preconditions that typically create mass movements or so pe- people you know feeling resentful either falling from grace or they they you know their their parents had a certain social status now they have a different social status um you know they they can't they can't get ahead in life um but it's also a type of personality um that t- typically tends to be attracted to to these things you know typically people who have yes. a narcissistic streak or people who are very invested in their self perception and then the mass movement gives them the opportunity to renounce the self to just kind of 
you know, stick onto this, this higher identity and it's a relief for them. So, um, I feel yeah. like, you know, this is kind of something that's, um, a type of personality that is almost perfectly spawned by the internet. You know, it's like the, the burden yes. of the self is very high nowadays, you know, to who are you identity, all this stuff, you know, you hear about this every day. Um, and you know, if you become part of the movement, then you don't even have to necessarily worry about that that much. You know, your identity is, I don't know, BLM or whatever, whatever. Right. Flavor of the or, or, um, what this reminds me of is perhaps, um, your identity can become just being a public health expert. And in order for that to be an identity, there has to be a certain homogeneity of values and premises that all public health experts adopt for it to really be, you know, um, to appear both as sort of credentialed expertise, but also to, to have this kind of functional role as an identity. And I do wonder if that explains some of the kind of homogenization of public health advice as the course of this pandemic has worn on and this weird uh, desire of some public health officials to seemingly prolong the pandemic by scaremongering about variants and vaccine and you know vaccine resistance and things like that i mean i think you could once you once you start seeing the world in this way you, you it's a very powerful framework and i think you start to see that a lot of um fields of quote unquote expertise um really are at root kind of more just like almost identitarian communities um and ways of ways of sort of reducing the burden of identity in the digital age and and ways of feeling like you're part of you know a priest the priesthood of public health for example yeah that's i think that's a that's a very uh timely timely example and it was it's, it's interesting to me how it took a little bit of time to get to the uh, to the canonical interpretation of the virus that every health expert uh, adhered to because uh, there, there was a little bit of instability at the beginning because no everyone was looking around to see hey what's <laughs> what side of this are we on and i think you know in the beginning it was you know the very online right wingers were all about masks and prepping and buying toilet right, paper right. um but then it flipped and then now you know obviously the right wingers want to murder babies be be extremely <laughs> <laughs> you know cavalier about this deadly virus um yeah, it's a, it's a, it's it, it is. I think that's right. that's probably one of the the bigger things against the marketplace of ideas. How liberalizing information and making it super competitive and super status related in this, you know, com yeah, competitive field, essentially the internet and you know the the open uh, marketplace of ideas. How much that ties into identity. And how right. much that, you know, that that nukes the the, the concept of, oh, we're just throwing right. around ideas here. No, you're battling identities. These are fucking Pokemon. Right. You know? Well, that's actually, I think that's another way of answering the question you asked earlier about what's the problem with the marketplace of ideas. Well, well think about what a what the mechanism in a normal market is. It's it's the price mechanism in the kind of canonical Hayekian interpretation of markets. It's the price mechanism that communicates value right and information but the problem is that sort of prices in the digital age you know sort of kind of the things that communicate the value so to speak of ideas are likes and retweets and they're things that that tend to not be correlated with truth um they're not really like dogs doxastic indicators um they're more social indicators of value 
And so, uh, you know, when, when the marketplace of ideas is online, the quote unquote price mechanism, there, there is a price mechanism. It is communicating information. It is kind of leading to, you know, equilibria, but, but the information it's communicating isn't about truth. It's about the social value of ideas and the equilibria that you're arriving at are not epistemic equilibria necessarily, or, or they're not, they're not, they're not epistemic equilibria that corresponds to the truth. They're sort of epistemic equilibria that correspond to a particular ideological narrative or social cause. Right. And I think that's a big part of the problem. Yeah, exactly. And there's just, you know, like you said, this push for people to be, you know, institute fact checking and, you know, wage war and misinformation. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of the, you know, the Achilles heel for, for all of this, because, you know, you're essentially just giving it a social rating, like, um, you know, like, <laughs> I think when, when Kellyanne Conway said that there are alternative facts, she was really, you know, she, she you know, it sounded a bit, a bit dubious, but yeah, it's, uh, that's, that's kind of how, that's kind of how it works. And that's kind of how the internet is. And, and the, the, the reality is that, you know, any event that happens, depending on, you know, which, which statistic you want to pull out of it, you know, there are, you know, alternative facts, things are com complex, the, the way they happen in real life. And if, if you, if you see, you know, if you see a different part of the elephant, uh, then yeah, that's that's an alternative fact, um, and yeah, I don't know what's what's your relationship because you you've been in, in the press now. Um, you're you're a relatively recent graduate, but you've been you've been in college. You've you've been in you've been in the papers. Um, what's what's your personal relationship to facts? Personal relationship to facts, huh? That's a good question. Um, I mean, facts exist, and there is a standpoint neutral, objective independent reality that I think is in principle knowable, or at least um, something that is in principle partly knowable um, through the right epistemic mechanisms. Um, you know, I'm not a hardcore postmodernist. I don't think that all truth, that, that it's all social constructs all the way down, right? Um, that said, I do think that actually a certain kind of postmodernist sensibility is very, very useful for analyzing. Um, power and what's going on and sort of the construction of not not the construction of maybe literal truth but like the construction of what we all quote unquote agree is true um yeah like i think a lot of things that are accepted as quote unquote facts are not really factual um but it doesn't matter um because everyone agrees to treat them as as facts uh i guess one example um, that might get me canceled, but I'll, I'll say it anyway, is uh, that the idea that uh, the idea that there's an epidemic of, you know, shootings of unarmed black men is by the police is just, it, it, I mean, there's no real statistical evidence for it. I mean, there is evidence that the police sometimes shoot people too quickly and that, you know, police aren't always well trained and there are black and white people who get unjustly shot by the police and that's obviously bad. But the idea that, and, and there is evidence that, uh, you know, cops are biased against African-Americans in certain ways, like more traffic stops, things that can't totally be explained by differences in crime rates. There's some kernel of truth there, but like the, the broader narrative that, you know, cops will just like pull their guns and, you know, routinely like execute, you know, unarmed black men on the street, uh, like, you know, but not do this for other races. It's just, it's just not true. Um, it's just, and yet, and 
yet um, simply stating clearly that it's not true and being upfront about that is, is to cancel yourself. And there's an entire media apparatus that says, no, it is true. And if you disagree, you're evil, right? Um, so I would say that, look, people like Herbert Marcuse um, and Foucault and even Chomsky and, and thinkers like that, their, their ideas are very useful for analyzing um, the kind of, you know, social construction of truth. It's just that if you, you know, apply that analysis correctly, in my view, you will come to see that a lot of the socially accepted truths are not right-wing ones, they're more left ones. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I completely agree. I'm, I'm, um, I'm, I'm struck by how much the needle was moved in this, this direction by the simple fact that now we have streaming video and, um, you know, yes. you have little pieces of information that, you know, you can, you can watch things a thousand times. And also the fact that now police is, I think, are they obligated to have body cams or they want to have body cams? Depends. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that's, you know, I think, you know, this, this has been what's been going on since I guess Rodney King, but um, now you can, you can have an, an event like this, you know, every, every week, every month, uh, you know, and, and it does, it does look terrible. Like, you know, this is, these are instances of violence. Um, they're selective instances of violence. Like, you know, the, the Tony Timpa thing didn't get that much airtime though. That one was, was also quite, uh, you know, a, a, a vicious situation of, of, you know, in a way murder mm -hmm. by cop. Um, so there, there, there are, you know, these are the little tidbits and the lizard brain is not prepared to deal with right. that stuff. Um, so, well, and it, and it goes, I mean, look, it, it, and it does, it does happen on all sides. Like it, it, it's very possible. I mean, I do think that, you know, the, the, that cancel culture, for example, is a real thing and that um, there kind of is a, a sort of increasingly a kind of soft despotism, you know, in all our institutions. But look, I mean, the reality is that, uh, the most insane things on both sides are like now kind of selected for by the internet and people see them. And so, uh, yes, like you can just pull out, you know, out of context kind of scenes of black men getting shot and, and make it seem like this is a ubiquitous social problem when that's not really true. You can also, I think, you know, point to the craziest, you know, abuses of say like the HR bureaucracy and, and, and paint a narrative in which, you know, white people are being like systematically fired from their jobs for saying, the, you know, that like, I don't know, for saying that there are only two genders or something like that. And I, I mean, how like that does happen and it's a problem. Um, I think it's probably more prevalent in some ways and, and more of a problem than the police thing. But like, how often does it really happen? What's your actual risk of being fired for having the wrong opinion? I mean, I think it's increased and that does create a kind of uh, deterrent effect where people don't want to speak their mind because, you know, even a small chance of being fired, you don't want to take. But like, I, I mean, look, let's be honest. I, I don't think that, um, you know, I, I, I think that there are like the uh, millions and millions of people go about their lives every day saying their opinions or, you know, not be getting canceled and, and generally being fine, like, and I do think it's worth keeping in mind that there is kind of this, a shrinking, but still very much uh, existent space of normality 
um, when you're not very online. And I do think the internet tends to distort people's perceptions of that. Yeah, that's that's definitely the case. Um, it, it you know it, it's it's interesting to me because you're a um, a recent graduate of the the Ivy system, and I'm curious what your take is on on what's going on because a, a lot of people say, okay, this is you know this is has been spawned by the universities, and you know the the, the worst the worst offenders, obviously the the Ivy League, the most elite of the elite institutions. They're horrible. <laughs> so is is that your take? Horrible. Was it was it worth the money? It's complicated. So I was there. Uh, I was a sophomore in 2015, which was when the kind of famous Halloween cultural appropriation controversy happened. Um, and I was actually the Chris Christakis affair, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I was the opinion editor of the school paper during Christakis Gate, um, and so I had to field all the opinion columns. You know bemoaning Yale's alleged institutional racism and, and all that. And, and one, you know, it's a good experience because it it made me see up close just how deranged this stuff is. And also, frankly, both how just dumb a lot of these arguments are and how a lot of people making these arguments genuinely can't think in a rational, logical way on one hand. And on the other hand, how many smart people who I know could think in a rational, logical way and could understand why the arguments were dumb and did deep down, I think, understand it, just how easy it is to stay silent and kind of allow the woke minority to kind of steamroll over everybody. Um, in terms of what this stuff did to, like how much Ivy League or just universities are to blame, obviously they shoulder some of the blame. I, I do think, uh, it's a bit simplistic to say that you just, you know, universities spawn these ideas and the ideas migrated into the culture and, you know, that the rest is history. That That's part of the story. And it's not at all surprising to me that as, you know, people graduate Yale and then go to the New York Times, the New York Times comes to resemble Yale and in its sort of cultural sensibilities, that that's unsurprising. On the other hand, right, you do have to ask why these ideas gained a foothold in the university in the first place um, and why they expanded so rapidly, you know, when they did. I think part of it is the internet, um, you know, that's a powerful disseminating force. But I also think that it's it's deeper than that. Um, for one thing, um, you know, a lot of the racial categories that kind of are, are at play in kind of the woke eschatology, a lot of them were sort of invented by like the federal government and the civil rights bureaucracy, like AAPI, Asian American Pacific Islander. There's no reason that those things should go together. And the reason, the reason they do is literally that the Office of Management and Budget, when it was like administering some kind of, I think, either affirmative action program or minority set-aside program, just kind of like made this up in order to just as like a as a matter of administrative convenience and then it just the meme kind of you know propagated and and now it's it's we think of you know these discrete totally different groups of people as part of one like protected class um so you know there that's one influence and and, and then i would say the other there's a couple others one i think is that um look there are genuine disparities and inequalities that i think are experienced as unjust and painful and that creates emotional and kind of moral energy behind um ideologies that promise to eliminate or correct the disparities um 
And frankly, um, you know, look, a lot of the complaints about disparate impact and, and the lack of minority representation in elite institutions are, are kind of unhinged and overblown. But the complaint about, say, the black-white wealth gap, that's actually a real thing, right? I mean, it is kind of insane how little wealth some people have and how wealth inequality tends to kind of sometimes track racial divisions. That's, I mean, I think it probably is substantively unjust, but even if it's not, it's clearly not good for the Republic. It's not stable. I mean, there's all, you know, the whole history of Republican thought has emphasized that excessive concentrations of wealth and excessive wealth inequalities are really bad for social stability and thus, you know, Machiavelli, right? Uh, and others like encourage you know, republics to make sure that they don't let it get that to get that point. Um, and uh, so I do think that wealth inequality plays a role and, and makes some of this stuff feel, you know, gives it a certain kind of moral mandate it wouldn't otherwise have. Um, and certainly the fact that there is a history of racial oppression in the United States uh, just amplifies all of that. Um, and then the last thing, and this is a kind of speculative argument that I'm working on, and I haven't written it up yet, much to my shame, but it's it will be written one day. It's in the works. Um, you know, I think once um, we made it not just the state's job, but also the job of private corporate bureaucracies to promote social justice, um, we created a pressure to kind of redefine social justice in terms that would be legible and measurable to bureaucracy. Right. If you're familiar with James E. Scott's argument and seeing like a state, it, you know, it's that like states have to come up with like ways of quantifying and seeing their population. Um, and, and that necessarily involves abstracting away from the kind of messy thicket of interpersonal relations and, and thinking of citizens in more almost statistical terms. And I think there's a, a kind of analogous process going on when it comes to, say, racial justice, where, um, you know, something like intent mattering, right? Intent is a hard thing to determine, right? It, it, claims about intent are subjective and unfalsifiable. Um, and so it's very hard to have a system like a civil rights or kind of anti-discrimination system that just tries to police kind of bad invidious intent and determine whether there was invidious intent because bureaucracy just in inherently really can't do that. But what they can do is they can measure racial disparities. Um, what they can do is they can measure complaints of microaggressions, regardless of intent, right? And, and so I think a lot of what wokeness is is sort of an emergent property of um, a bureaucratized system of social justice because it, it, it's really a way of justifying bureaucratic imperatives. Like you can't, solve these problems through a bureaucracy unless you conceptualize the problems in terms bureaucracy can understand. And disparate impact is just a much easier thing for a bureaucracy to understand and track than actual, say, intent to discriminate um, or something like that. And so I think that's why we've seen a movement away in the culture from believing that intent matters, right, uh, to, to just a culture where it's it's all about outcomes and it's all about, you know, uh, like, you know, th things that can be quantified, really. That's a lot of what wokeism is. Um, and it's not to say that that's the only or even the primary source of it, but I do think that that's an important part of the story that hasn't really been explored and told. I don't really know what the solution is because 
we're, we're not going to go back to a world in which we, you know, bureaucracies are going to take social justice to be a mandate and, and an imperative. We're just not going to undo that both. I think because politically it's impossible. And frankly, because morally, like, you know, in a world where there is, there are inequalities and there are problems and there is a history of, you know, racial injustice. It, it, like this is, this is just what we're stuck with a kind of, you know, bureaucratized way of handling social justice. But once you bureaucratize social justice, it, I think, creates systemic pressures that lead to these pathologies. And I don't really know what the answer is. Um, a good first step might be to have smarter, more competent bureaucrats who are capable of being a little more nuanced. Um, you know, I think the dumber the bureaucrats are, the greater the pressure is to sort for them to simplify the problem. Um, but you know, that's not a perfect solution. And yeah, like I, I, I think, I think that there is a lot of truth in Caldwell's like etiology of wokeism, tracing it back to the civil rights movement. But I also don't really know what the alternative would be. And frankly, I don't think he has an alternative. And um, we're not going to dismantle the civil rights state. Frankly, I don't think we should. And I don't really think that anyone proposing we should has thought for two minutes, like how that's going to work and just how we're going to move forward. So we have that bureaucracy. We have all the mini HR departments that spawned. Um, they've kind of been captured by this ideology. There are selective pressures that make it very hard for them to resist being captured by this ideology. That's unfortunate. Um, yeah. And there are there's some things some... we can do about it, but not that many. Yeah, and there, there's essentially once, once this, because I really like this argument, the, the, the kind of seeing like a state argument. I think it, it applies to to a few things, but this one, yeah, I think I think you're you've hit the nail on the head with that one. Um, and I think once this train is in motion, there are feedback mechanisms, you know, little loops that kind of. Mm -hmm expand this even further so uh, you know it's um if if your imperative as a you know either an hr department which is essentially kind of a little state apparatus within a company or the state itself uh is to um is to address inequality um you're going to be looking essentially kind of p-hacking inequality in any sort of way and like you said you know there's either these aggregate um categories uh, like for example you know um, black, Bi BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, mm. and people of color, things like that, all these kind of aggregates. But it's interesting that if, if you were to actually, you know, break down a lot of these categories by more um, granular um, heritage, you'd mm. see that there's, there's, quite, there's quite, you know, different, um, um, e even yeah. with, within sub-ethnicities, like, you know, there are certain Nigerian tribes that are doing extremely right, well, right. like doing extremely well in, in Silicon Valley or things like that. So the, the, the blindness to this or the, the kind of the selective blindness to certain perspectives like this, I think is, is part and parcel of the, the construction and the, the longevity of these institutions. They, they have an incentive to show that, Whatever they're doing is not working because, you know, either right. the HR department and the company, that's, you're not going to get rid of the HR department. It's there to make spreadsheets and it's there to right. show stats. So it's not, it's not um, correlated to any sort of productivity. No one's getting fired in these places. Well, yeah, yeah. so that's, that's true. But it's important to also keep in mind that um, even though that's true, the HR department doesn't believe it's true and the corporations don't necessarily believe it either, right? They actually think 
you know, you hear all this rhetoric about how diversity actually helps the bottom line. Does it? I mean, maybe in certain cases, but probably in most, this is just like made up. But because we've almost, it's like a socially constructed standard of efficiency. It's not, it's kind of decoupled from any reality or or objective metric yeah, of like it's, it's become reality it's become reality yeah, exactly. in the sense this is that the kind of postmodernism reasserting itself yeah if you if you're caught out not uh, not doing enough diversity then it might be really bad for the bottom line yeah it's actually this is a good example there's something it's called a double hermeneutic effect in in philosophy and social theory where like the way you interpret the world in turn actually shapes the world which in turn kind of confirms the interpretation Right. So if you if you say that, like, uh, this is just, you know, diversity is important for efficiency, um, like and then everyone starts to believe that, um, then if you don't have a diverse company, um, putting aside even the, the possible civil rights lawsuits, you is people will believe that you're not efficient or you're not good and then they won't shop there and it will hurt your bottom line so the very act of claiming that efficiency that diversity leads to efficiency is in some sense a self-fulfilling prophecy once enough people make the claim and and believe it um again you know i I would just emphasize like i think this is bad and a problem i also don't think it's you know civilization ending or the end of the world like efficiency isn't the be-all end-all and there have always been a lot of stupid fads you know before uh kind of wokeism that where businesses thought something was like efficient and they didn't really have any evidence and through this sort of process of like you know uh mimetic like homogenization and isomorphism they all just sort of like came to you know like business culture just you know, passes through fads and like, that's just how it works. Um, and you know, that didn't, hasn't, and probably won't destroy American capitalism. I, I, one, one, one thing I do get really annoyed with is people who claim that because BLM is technically a Marxist group that like BLM and wokeism is like a Trojan horse for socialism. I, I just really don't see it. It's, it's, it's institutionalized in huge companies that have a, very strong incentive to not embrace socialism you know bernie lost handle I, like i just the idea that we're gonna turn into a communist country actually with like economic central planning because of wokeism no that's not what's going to happen we'll we'll have lots of mini inefficiencies as we try to promote diversity and become ever more obsessed with like managing microaggressions and managing what are really micro disparities within companies that will have costs. It will, the biggest costs are probably that they just make everyone obsessed with race and make everyone think in a kind of unhealthy racialist way about the world. Um, that phrase, the social fabric, but like the idea that there's some straightforward pathway from this to command and control Soviet union poverty. No, that's just not true. And people like James Lindsay should not say that it is or imply it because they're wrong. I think the, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting perspective because they, they both deal in, you know, class consciousness. And I feel like that's, that's an easy association to make, um, you know, kind of the idea of group rights, but this is not the place where group rights were invented. Group rights were a thing, you know, for for a very long time and in many different ways. Um, But um, I'm curious how, how much you think that uh, 
this has become salient because in a way this is all there is. Um, so, you know, your relationship to the market seems to be the only, you know, the only place left to, to, to interact. Um, you know, you've, you've got kind of the breakdown of, of you know, local communities, of, of mm-hmm. you know, re- religious systems, systems of faith outside of pol- politics and the internet. Um, and, you know, how well you perform in terms of how much, you know, money you can make or how many consumption opportunities you're able to generate or how much status you can, you know, you can milk from the system with your brain cells has become really, really important. So in a way that kind of the meritocracy has kind of become very like a, like an iron force because there's not many other competing forces with it um, yeah. for, for a lot of people. So it, it seems like, okay, um, we need to somehow integrate everyone into the meritocracy um which is just just an impossible task you know some people will be better right. suited at you know becoming facebook executives than others and if yeah. that's the only ladder that you have then obviously you know you're going to have social conflict because there's no there's no alternative right. safety nets for status yeah, i think that's right um and i would add though that um that i think is another People think of meritocracy and kind of wokeism as opposed, but there was a good essay in Tablet recently that argued that, in fact, no, they're two sides of the same coin because what wokeism does is it manufactures these narratives of oppression that then people can claim to have overcome, thereby signaling their merit and signaling that they deserve a spot at the top of the meritocracy and thus credentializing themselves. So it when you create this competitive rat race, it, it produces pressures to to find new ways of demonstrating your merit, um, especially if the established ways, you know, maybe you're not going to be the best test taker, right? You, you find another way of showing your talent and your merit um, outside of the SAT. So in practice, I, I don't actually think that meritocracy is is a very stable form like pure meritocracy hasn't and doesn't really exist in the united states i guess maybe it can exist in some asian countries or some discrete bureaucracies in asian countries but like it's hard to make work i think it's probably not a coincidence that um you know the country we most associate with meritocracy today is china which is a fairly ethnically homogenous and b extremely like totalitarian and coercive and you know uh just keeps you know ethnic minorities down by like putting them in camps and beating them with electric rods right like i think you know true pure meritocracy is unstable so if you want a meritocratic form of government and a meritocratic selection mechanism to the extent china has that um you kind of have to either make compromises like you know, affirmative action or things to kind of take the edge off the most glaring kind of inequalities and exclusions of the meritocracy. Or you just have to tell people we're doing it this way. And if you don't like it, we'll shoot you. And I would prefer, frankly, you know, the former to the latter, right? Like, I'd rather merit the meritocracy be a bit diluted about what it is and make all these compromises and not be fully meritocratic. Um, I'd rather that than us keep pure meritocracy and solve the inevitable social conflicts it creates, you know, through the barrel of a gun, which I think is kind of the the only alternative. Um, So, you know, and and of course, then the third alternative is to just not have merit. 
hypocrisy, but in the modern world, like what, what is, you know, how, well, how do you actually do that? Um, so yeah, there's no great answer here. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a tough question because a lot of times when people talk about, you know, unequal representation and, you know, where are the women fortune 500, um, companies, they, they look at it almost like it's, you know, like you're acceding to, to royalty. Like, you know, once, once you just get into the boardroom, you can kick your feet up and then, you know, you're, you're set. These are like grinding places to these mm-hmm. the the war of all against all is is quite active at the top um you know the, the, you know places of, of intrigue you know that compete with the the middle ages um and the, this whole idea that you know um especially i mean from from my perspective as a woman i've been in you know i've been kind of in in, in the rat race and i've tried to you know did did my fair share of clawing um and it's it's not all it's cracked up to be and it's sincerely this is the only thing that that is presented as as worthy in our in our culture for whoever you know it's you know male female you know wherever you're from um you know you're supposed to be you know either raking it in or making it big somewhere um and i don't know i feel like you know the the mythologies of of finding value somewhere else are have kind of really fallen away like you need to really kind of go through it to see the emptiness of it to to come out on the other side and okay you know to 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 yeah. you know make make money work somehow but not make yourself you know into a slave of this particular hierarchy that's you know that's essentially the, the only one provided um i don't know it's it's in a way i feel like the maybe a solution would be for people to you know, get woke on the fact that, you know, this is, you know, the, the, the Moloch hierarchy might not be as sexy as it's, uh, as it's presented. Um, and that, you know, we might be missing something, uh, you know, at a, at a, I don't even know if to call it a spiritual level. I don't, I'm not, yeah. I'm not a very religious person, but, you know, there's something more to life. And I feel like that's, that's a very fruitful avenue that we probably should explore a bit, a bit more in, in yes. our discourse and, and how we relate to each other. Yes, I completely agree with you. Um, before I, I let you go, uh, cause I know we're, we're going on a little bit over time here, so I hope I'm not, I'm not keeping No, up. no worries. So I have a question of the show. Um, do you have a subversive thinker or writer or someone who's been influential in your life that, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you think okay, so, so I came up, more. I came sure. up, I knew this was coming. So I came up with four, um, and I Perfect. will list them and I will tell you for each one, what exactly they're subversive of. Um, and some of these are a bit unorthodox, but I, I think they work. So um, the first two are going to be basically analytic philosophers who I think are actually very much worth reading. Um, the first is Derek Parfit. Um, and what I would say he is subversive of is the liberal concept of personal identity and the self. Um, you mentioned earlier that there's kind of this you know unbearable burden of the self, especially in the digital age. Well, Parfit's whole philosophical project is showing how the self is not a particularly coherent notion and how personal identity over time is often indeterminate. Um, and, you know, he's associated more with a kind of utilitarian tradition that I think is, is in our discourse coded as more left-wing or neoliberal. But I actually think that when you look at his arguments, they they justify they 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 can lead to a kind of almost you know 
maybe chic Buddhism or whatever, but they can also lead to, I think, a pretty serious critique of the whole concept of identity and of like the self being something you need to search, you know, for meaning. I think he, he destabilizes the whole concept with a variety of very rigorous analytical arguments. Um, he also has a lot of interesting stuff about population ethics. And that's actually another thing he's subversive of. Um, he, you know, this whole meme that like, oh, we need to have stop having kids because climate change, blah, blah, blah. As I read him, he presents an extremely powerful challenge to that view by basically showing how um, it, it's actually very hard to avoid the conclusion that a world with many, many more people all at fairly low levels of welfare would be better than a world with fewer people at higher levels of welfare. I mean, it, it leads, it's, it's partly based on this kind of just weird, crude additive utilitarianism, but he, he like constructs these very, very clever arguments for this conclusion. Um, your readers can look up the repugnant conclusion on the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Um, Derek Parfit, uh, Derek, P-A-R-F-I-T. Um, look up Derek Parfit and the repugnant conclusion and his work on personal identity. It, it subverts a lot of um, liberal memes and notions. Um, second thinker in that vein is a kind of analytic political theorist named G.A. Cohen, who is a was a hardcore Marxist at Oxford, um, sometimes referred to as a no bullshit Marxist, um, because he, you know he wasn't into all the kind of postmodern or critical theoretic jargon that a lot of you know neo Marxists are into. He was like into analytic philosophy and hardcore econ. Um, and the reason I would recommend reading him, what I, what I think he subverts is the the kind of liberal and libertarian idea that there are that we can draw really principled distinctions between state and corporate power. He shows how the rules of the market economy the state sets up um, are themselves a power structure that can restrict freedom in all kinds of ways. I think he has an essay called like does it might be called like is money freedom or does money restrict freedom? And it's basically his point is just like to have money or to have property is to deny everyone else access to it. And thus, you know, all kind of private property is itself restricts other people's freedom. And he's making, he's making, and he makes all sorts of analytical arguments against Robert Nozick, famous libertarian, um, contributed a lot to debates about, you know, quote unquote, the equality of what debate, what we ought to be equalizing. And look, he's a Marxist, so like a lot of his actual proposals are insane um, and wouldn't work. But um, but he is very good at, I think, sort of destroying a lot of the, you know, stupid brainworms libertarianism that that is woven into our culture. And I would recommend conservatives read him because I think that, frankly, if you will come away from him um, really realizing how just intellectually impoverished a lot of libertarian economic arguments are and how they just ignore all sorts of very important um, philosophical dimensions and, and objections. Um, and then so the second two that I'll recommend are both in their own ways works of history and arguably applied sociology. Um, Albion Seed by David Hackett Fisher. Um, you know, which talks about the kind of cultural um, under, you know, the, the four sort of folkways from Britain that came over from the from the UK to, to the United States and helped settle the colonies. Um, what that subverts really is the kind of idea that we're a purely creedal nation. I don't think that it shows that creedalism is unimportant. And in fact, it 
arguably provides a kind of cultural genealogy for the sort of universalist creedalism that a lot of Americans believe in. But it does a very good job of showing how that universalist notion is itself rooted in a very particular strain of Protestant culture that is not necessarily itself universal. Um, and, and it really does a good job of showing how just like a lot of conflicts and ideas in the United States today really can be traced back to like these, you know, four Puritan folkways. It's also just an entertaining book. Um, it's, it's a thousand pages, which scares people, but it's really engagingly written. You can get through it surprisingly quickly. Highly recommend. Um, yeah. And the I've, last. I've had it on, on audio, on audible. It's, it's pretty easy to consume that way just in case people. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun. Yeah. Um, and the last one I would say um, more recent is a, uh, Hugh Davis Graham. He has a book called Collision Course, which is on the interplay of civil rights and affirmative action policy, or re really affirmative action and, sorry, affirmative action and immigration. But it's really like a history of kind of how the civil rights state interacted with immigration and how that kind of helped create a lot of these like new legal racial fictions and categories like AAPI. I mean, he talks about that. He talks a lot about the history. Um, and, and a lot of what he ends up showing is how both immigration influenced these categorizations, but also how it kind of obsolesced them and how, you know, uh, like it presented a kind of long-term challenge to affirmative action because it um, destabilized the racial categories on which affirmative action policy was built. I think it, there's just a lot of good history in there. And, you know, most straightforwardly, it, it's subversive of, you know, a lot of the kind of woke narrative about both affirmative action and immigration and shows how just path dependent and arbitrary it was. Um, also, also, I think can in, there's a certain way where you can read his ideas as, as like almost a maybe left wing, not critique of immigration, but like a cautionary note that it's very hard to kind of have affirmative action policies that deliberately try to re to like socially engineer society while you are simultaneously changing the underlying like composition of society. Like it's, 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 you know, it's, it's easy if everything is standing still and in stasis to kind of move the pieces around and engineer it. It's a lot harder when it's constantly in flux and that's really what immigration does. I also think there's a way of reading it that maybe is subversive of some right-wing pessimism about immigration because it, I think, shows how immigration actually in the long run can destabilize some of the woke uh, concepts and categorizations um, into which, you know, politicians attempt to enlist immigrants. And, like, I think Ross Dow put out a column about this, but, you know, the, the racial future of the United States is, I think, more indeterminate than people realize. And that's actually, in some ways, I think probably a good thing that may augur well in the long run for, you know, the possibility of kind of breaking out of some of these like, you know, weird racial binaries we have um, that, that kind of are constitutive of a lot of the, the kind of woke political and moral narrative. So yeah, those are my four. Yeah, those those are, are really good ones. Um, I've I've read some Derek Parfit and I've read the uh, Albion Seed, but I haven't read the other two. So I'll definitely I'll definitely check those out. Check um, out. It's called um I think it's called um self ownership, freedom, and equality, or something like that. That's the Cohen book that I think is like the most just utterly devastating critique of libertarianism. Um, 
It also actually contains an interesting critique of the concept of self-ownership, which is also, I think, subversive of a lot of like liberal Lockean notions, not just in economics, but in the culture writ large. Um, so that's another reason to read it. That's good. I'll, I'll add it to my post-liberal reading list. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of Marxists and a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of Marxists to be, to be honest on there. Yeah. But yeah I mean, it ten, tends to be it. Um, I, um, yeah, I want to, I want to thank you so much for, for coming on. Uh, you know, you're doing a, a heck of a job. Like I, your writings is, is sterling and just a, the, the way you present arguments is, you know, second to none. So I, I thank you a lot for, for doing this job and for thinking through these problems in a, in a really original way. Um, and I want to point people towards your work. Like where, where can people find you? Where, what's the best? Uh, so on, I'm on Twitter at, uh, Aaron, just the handle is at Aaron Sibarium, all lowercase. Um, the last name is spelled S-I-B-A-R-I-U-M. Um, and I am now a writer at the Free Beacon. So, you know, my reporting, which is more kind of analytical reporting, I try to like unpack sort of some of the, more, you know, deeper stories and causal mechanisms behind like the surface level outrages. You can read all that at the Free Beacon. I, I haven't written any essays in a few months because I've been busy with work, but I do plan to get back to freelancing at some point soon. And I've written for a place called American Purpose, uh, American Compass, um, to a lot of Americans, uh, <laughs> and uh, a bit for Quillette and National Review. But yeah, you know, you can find my work on Twitter. Cool. Thank you so much, Aaron. Yeah, thank you so much. This was really fun. Uh, if you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you. <laughs>